It sounds good, doesn't it? Does it warm the cockles of your heart? What a great tune. Hosanna, Hosanna to the Lamb that was slain. Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus died and rose again. Wouldn't it be great if that were true? I mean, really. So what, really? We'll be here an hour, hour and a half. And then we go back to real life, as they say. We'll be looking at Isaiah 51. as we continue our series in Isaiah. The context, remember, as I'll remind us in just a few minutes, the context, the historic context, is Isaiah has been ministering in Israel for 35, maybe 40 years. The beginning of his ministry, his ministry was launched by um, going into the temple during a time of real insecurity, real vulnerability, real uncertainty in the wake of King Uzziah's death. It was a historic event. It was real life. And he went to the temple. Did he go to the temple to escape real life? No. He went into the temple to make sense of real life. And what did he behold there? He beheld the glory of God. The glory of God and all of its power and all of its presence. And that was his message. For 40 years, that was his message. When Ahaz faced down the alliance against him to force him into a military alliance, a hopeless military alliance against the rising powers of Assyria... That was Isaiah's message. Remember the glory and the power. 35, some 40 years later, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, faced a similar military challenge. It was very real. The armies of the Assyrian king Sennacherib spread before Jerusalem as far as the eye could see. And Isaiah's message was the same message. Remember the glory. In both situations, Ahaz just um, blatantly said, yeah, no thanks. Hezekiah was a bit more muted, and he said, well, what do I have to lose? Which then thrusts us into the second portion of Isaiah's recorded ministry, beginning with Isaiah 40, which begins with this. Comfort, comfort. Because the entirety of Isaiah's message goes something like this. The glory of God's power is a very real comfort and hope in tumultuous times. Such an easy message. So easy to forget. 
so easy to write off. Read with me Isaiah chapter 51, verse, the first eight verses. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, O my people. Give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wood. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God, who by his son Jesus Christ is powerful and present and alive today, even in Flintstone, Georgia. So let us go to him and ask him to bless this reading of his word to us. So Father, we do come because you have called us, because through your son Jesus Christ you have made us alive and granted us eyes to see and ears to hear. So strengthen us by your Spirit now, we pray, to see wonderful things in this, your Word, and to hear the good news of your great power exercised throughout this world to make all things new, that we may hope in you. To that end, feast us upon this, your Word, and protect us from error. For we prayed in Jesus. Amen. We are a frightened people. Some of you will remember from just a couple weeks ago that our dear, beloved Sunday school teacher held up a bottle of Germex and said, This is fear. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we have a lot of Germex in our congregation. We have two right here. We are a frightened, frightened people. I know we don't feel like we're frightened people most of the time. Some of you are keenly aware that you're a frightened people, even at this moment. But we are a frightened people. 
Our, our lives are consumed by and shaped by and motivated by fear. We are afraid that we might let, be left behind, and so we fret about whether we got the right job or not, whether we got the right phone or not. Did we get the latest iPhone update? And nuts, now I'm going to have to spend $1,000 in order to be on the winning edge of technology. But it'll give me a leg up on the competition. We fret about whether or not we have the latest or greatest, whether our children are learning the right things in the right pace, in the right quantities, in the right combinations. We fret, is my parenting hindering my children from getting ahead? Have I made the right decisions? Am I, have I chosen the right diapers? Are they green enough? Oh no, they've left a rash. Am I a bad parent, doctor? We better get our act together. If we haven't chosen the right diapers, we better choose the right Head Start program. After all, that's what good parents do. We're afraid that our diets may be killing us maybe slowing us, maybe weighing us down. For some of us, that's visibly true. We're afraid that we or our children may encounter germs. We're afraid that if we eat X, Y, or Z, or some mysterious combination of it all, or some established but unknown quantity of it all, we may die sooner than our days. Oh, we're afraid that we have, might not have enough money, and so we spend money to cover all the contingencies by which our money may be lost. We're afraid of not having. We're afraid of not progressing. We're so afraid that we're not hardly even living. We're frightened people. Think for a moment, not to put too fine a point on it, but think for a moment, how do you, how do I, how do we, how do our family, parenting, career, financial, romantic involvement, marriage decisions among a host of others show themselves to be rooted in our fears? Just think for a moment and let's be honest with ourselves. I won't ask for a show of hands. For example, how often do you find yourself, as I find myself, deciding on a course of action or inaction, as the case might be, by saying something like this, but if we don't do X, then such and such will happen. Alternatively, if we do Y, then such and such will most assuredly happen. And to put a finer point on it, how often do we find ourselves involved in making such and such decisions by asking ourselves this, hath God said, or more to the point of our passage, 
hath God done? I will be honest with you. I rarely approach decision-making with those questions in view. How about you? We are a fearful and frightened and fretful people because we are a forgetful people. We're forgetful of our own folly and our own frailty. We're forgetful of our record of our wisdom's failure. We're forgetful also of God's wisdom and His strength and His power as demonstrated in the mighty acts of His love in human history. And thus it is that channeling the Apostle Peter, that nuclear physicist turned theologian Vinoth Ramakandra reminds us that what frightens a people serves as a reliable guide to their idolatries. What frightened the people of Israel was an unstable and waning economy. What frightened them was waning military might and influence in the world. In this way, you see, our forgetfulness is a double blasphemy. Because on the one hand, it denies the power and the presence of the Lord our God, the very Lord who has brought us up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and that He has done so in faithfulness to what He said. And it's also a blasphemy because it functionally seeks, therefore, to replace him or to supplement him or to redefine him or to recast him as a golden calf made of the treasures and wisdom of Egypt, which themselves have already been proven bankrupt. You find yourself afraid and discouraged perhaps even despondent, struggling against a tidal wave of cynicism? Do you find yourselves just having been disappointed one too many times and ready to give up on your chosen schemes and strategies that have failed you? Would you like to be rescued once again from the treasures and the wisdom of Egypt? question is, how can this happen? Just as our fears expose our idolatries, how we respond to those fears and navigate through them reveals our hope. But brothers and sisters, it not only reveals our hope, but it proclaims the world's hope. It proclaims our nation's hope. It proclaims St. Louis's hope. It proclaims North Korea's hope. It proclaims Myanmar's hope. 
It proclaims the hope of the Rohingya. To be a Christian, brothers and sisters, is not, listen to me carefully because I know to whom I speak. To be a Christian, brothers and sisters, is not to adhere to a set of theological principles, however refined and full. but to adhere to, to abide in the mighty acting of the living and loving, powerful and present God in the face of, in the midst of, and through the fears and fretfulness of life in a world at war. Indeed, to abide in the glory of God that we know by the name of Jesus. And so Isaiah says, look, Right there in the second part of verse 1, look, look at the history of God's promise. Look at the mighty works in history that he has done to fulfill his promise. Look, Isaiah says, look, where? Look to the rock from which you were hewn, the quarry from which you were dug. Dude, speak plainly. Okay, I will. Look to Abraham, your father, who was as live as a rock. Look to Sarah, who has as much promise of producing life as a quarry. Look, from rock has come life, from a quarry has come a cathedral, from a dead man has come a multitude. Look! And you don't have to look far. Look around you, children of Abraham. Now, some several hundred years after the exodus, during which time their slavery and their sojourn in Egypt, during which time they actually multiplied and came a mass, a mixed multitude, Scripture tells us, of over a million people. Look, he says, look. But he goes on, he doesn't stop there. Look. Look to the mighty works of God in creation. He makes a wilderness like Eden. He makes a desert like a garden. He makes a wasteland a place of joy and gladness. Look! He says, look! From nothing comes a flourishing garden. From dust comes mankind. Because the word of God is powerful to do what it says it will do. I will make you a mighty nation and I will give you a mighty name and boom, it's done. Look. But not just look. Look at the history of recreation. He's talking about a wilderness and a desert and this place of gladness and he's speaking in terms of Zion. Look to your own history. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Do you remember that? I brought you through 
the, the wilderness. Do you remember that? I brought you into the land of promise. I made you a mighty late nation to which nations from all over the world came in the days of Solomon and then again in the days of Uzziah. Look. Look. But he also says, listen. Listen for a law. Listen. Give ear. Verse 4 to the law that goes out from me, to the wisdom that goes out from me, to the teaching that goes out from me. The law here is not, again, to reiterate the previous point, the law here is not a set of theological principles. It's not theological propositions to agree to or not. The law here is the manifestation of the wisdom of God when it takes on flesh and acts powerfully in His world. The law is nothing other than the description of the power of God operating according to the design of God. Listen. The same word, the same arm, which in fact is not shortened, is doing a mighty act and is speaking to you today. Now that was true of Isaiah speaking in his day to the people of Israel. And brothers and sisters, it is true of the message that you receive from this pulpit today. It's only the trumpet that has changed. The music is the same. But it's not just about you. It's not even just about the 12 tribes. Look, lift your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens vanish and the earth will wear out. This is a promise that exceeds the time that the earth can stand. It is a promise that remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Eternity past and eternity future. But more, it is a promise, verse 3, that reaches to the coastlands. It's not just about Abraham, but it's about all the nations at the Tower of Babel who wanted to make for themselves a great name. Through Abraham, God says to the nations, I will make you a great nation. I will give you a great name. My promise is not just about Abraham. It's not just about Abraham's offsprings. It's about all the peoples who walk in darkness, even to the ends of the earth. It is huge, and it is powerful, and it is real, and it is present. And so, take courage, verse 7. Do not fear the reproach of man, because mankind's schemes and strategies, his greatest accomplishments and strengths and successes will come to nothing. It's easy for us to think 
as we watch the standoff between two proud and insecure world leaders unfolding before our very eyes, it's very easy for us to think, this is it. It's all over. But the schemes of even such powerful men who seem to be well beyond the reach of wisdom and reason will come to nothing. They will dissolve. Moth and rust will destroy them. The mighty works of God's own steadfast and loving commitment to his own design and promises, which is what scripture means when at the very foundation, when it speaks of the righteousness of God, his steadfast and loving commitment to accomplish what he said he would do will prove itself not just in the ivory towers of some cosmic university, but in your life, in my life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. In every relationship, in every responsibility, in every conversation, in every circumstance, great and small, the mighty works of God's steadfast and loving commitment to his design will be proven in human history. And they will be impervious to failure and decay. This, you see, is the promise that made the cross of Jesus so scandalous. He says here, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their, at their revilings, for moth will eat them up like a garment, the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever my salvation to all generations, and we behold Jesus hanging on a cross. Dead. It's an absolute scandal because it puts the lie to God's promise. Do not think for a moment that this is not what the disciples were thinking for three days. And any of you who have endured the grief of a lost loved one or a disappointed dream know that a day is as a thousand years. So that when the women came back and they said, we have seen him, he has risen from the dead. The disciples said, no way. Because if that's true, then it means that indeed his righteousness does last forever. His salvation does last to all generations because even death cannot end it. Brothers and sisters, we are fearful because we are forgetful and we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded that our God is the real superpower in the world. 
Whether we find ourselves frightful and fearful over two proud and insecure men who have been given the keys and access to nuclear arms who need to prove themselves that they're big boys now and can wear big boy pants. Or fretful and fearful over the explosion of interpersonal and interracial tensions in the very heart of who we are as citizens of these United States. Or fretful and fearful over the sheer size and strength and quantity of storms that far exceed our ability to comprehend or control, never mind predict. Or fearful and fretful over the challenges of parenting and our apparent failures as parents. You see, brothers and sisters, when our national security becomes our hope in place of or beside or in addition to Jesus, when our international standing comes to be our hope in place of or in addition to Jesus, when our personal reputation or our racial or any other identity becomes our hope in place of or beside or in addition to Jesus, when being at the top of the class or being married or single or having many or few children or having well-behaved children or ill-behaved children, brothers and sisters, when those things become in place of Jesus or in addition to Jesus, our hope, then we have forgotten. When any of these are then are our hope, when those become threatened, we become fearful and fretful people. We become fearful and fretful people because we have forgotten that God has shown himself in Jesus to be the real superpower. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand this is the good news by which the pretenses and would-be powers and principalities of the world are exposed for the pretenders that they are. I recently picked up a book entitled Subverting Global Myths. For those of you who are liking to add to your reading list, put that title down, Subverting Global Myths by Vinoth Ramakandra, I quoted him earlier. Uh, he is not North American, but I promise you he is wise and you can trust him. In fact, uh, there's a true sense in which because he's not North American, he is wise and you can trust him. He's a Sri Lankan theologian in the Anglican tradition. And he writes this, at the end of his essay in which he subverts the myth of terrorism, he writes this. The prospect of endless acts of terror creates a sense that the future is closed, inevitable, and hopeless. Christians abide, however, in a hope that is not based on the conditions of world history. Did you get that? It is rooted, nevertheless, 
in the conviction that the triune God has not abandoned his world to usurping principalities and powers, but has acted decisively in Christ for the healing and recreation of his world. The Christian hope that energizes a passionate and sustained engagement with this world and, might I add, with our neighbors, strangers, and even enemies in this world. The Christian hope that energizes and, and energizes a passionate and sustained engagement with this world in the face of violence and terror is a hope that looks forward to the coming one whose life, listen, began with the slaughter of the innocents. There's a Christmas story for you. Who fled as a refugee with his family to Egypt. Who suffered torture and terrorism at the hands of the imperial power of his day. Died so that both victims and victimizers may find forgiveness and new beginnings. Descended into hell to show solidarity with all who have experienced his destructive power and finally defeated death, fatalism, and terror by his bodily resurrection. To be baptized into the death and resurrection, into that death and resurrection, is to be both free from the fear of dying and also fearful of dying in the service of the wrong God. Stop. Look. Listen. Our God has spoken. Our God has acted. Therefore, we may have courage. Take just a moment. I'm taking a quick scan, and to my knowledge, what I'm about to say is true. Look around you. There is not one person in this room who names the name of Jesus in faith who is, biologically speaking, a descendant of Abraham. Why is that? Because my righteousness has drawn near, my salvation has gone out, my arms will judge the peoples, and even the coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. The power of God's promise has reached the ends of the world. We are the coastlands here. We are the uttermost parts of the ends of the earth. We are the end of that great axe rubric, Jerusalem, Samaria, and even the uttermost parts of the earth. That's us. Because our God reigns. 
He is powerful and He is present to fulfill His promises. Even today. Truly, God is the real superpower. And this, brothers and sisters, has profound implications for all of life. Consider, for example, just a couple things. Many of you have been watching the news and are well aware of the protests, the racial tensions and the violent protests in St. Louis in the wake of the Stokely decision just a couple days ago. Sam Heist, Heist posts in Facebook a call to prayer. He says, pray for a number of things, but then he says this, pray for the church, pray for us here. And this is the rationale he gives for that call to prayer. Listen. I genuinely believe that the gospel of Jesus is the best news in the world. Not because it makes us feel good, but because it reveals a God who is powerful and faithful. He continues. We worship a God of truth and grace, righteousness and mercy, justice and compassion. God hates sin but loves sinners. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he is able to destroy evil without destroying us. Soon and very soon, sickness, sin, evil and death shall be no more. Those things might seem murky and unclear. Though, excuse me, those things that seem murky and unclear will be bright as day. What has been said in the dark will be heard in the light. What has been whispered in private shall be shouted from the housetops. Truth will prevail. Justice will prevail. Peace will prevail. How can he say that? Because Jesus has prevailed. So let's step forward in hope, in love, in courage. Let's show the world that Christ's coming kingdom looks like here, what it looks like here, now, today. Because, brothers and sisters, we are the inbreaking of that coming kingdom. We are the people who walked in darkness, we are the people who dwelt in the coastlands. God has been faithful to his promise, spoken so many years ago. To be a Christian is not to adhere to a set of theological principles, but is to adhere to, to abide in the mighty acting of the living and loving, powerful and present God, in the face of, in the midst of, and even through the things that cause us fear and fretfulness in this world. It is to abide with Jesus in Gethsemane, to walk with him to Golgotha, to lie with him in the grave, and to rise together with him to new life. This is the God we serve. This is the God of comfort. This is the God of glory and power. And so, Father, we do pray that by the power of that glory,